live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch, to the final episode on the very unusual life of Rabbi Huda Ariyomi Modena, who you've already very aptly described had a life that was packed full of drama. Yes, and before we get into the podcast itself, it is dedicated towards two people. Firstly, Le'ilu Nishmas Rabbi Yitzhak ben Avram, in gratitude to a family member who was very helpful in creating this series. And secondly, as a refuah shlema to Shmuel ben Chava Rochel, who also helped me with one of the sources and was the only person to correctly guess the identity of our unknown 17th century genius before it appeared in print. Wow. So as a very brief recap, in the week one, we dealt with a lot of his personal story. Last week was more the, I guess, the rabbinic side in his writings. With all you've told us till now, I can't really say I've got a full picture of who he was, if you know what I mean. I agree. But before we come to any conclusions, let's see some more about him, specifically his interactions with the outside non-Jewish world. We mentioned that Modena was a very popular speaker. You know, on Shabbos Yontov, he drew crowds for many years. He printed more than 400 of his speeches, and we're not talking short pieces. In 1629, he spoke in the Svardi Shul to an audience which included the brother of Louis XIII, the King of France, and he developed acquaintances with several foreign diplomats in Venice, including the French ambassador and Sir Henry Wotton. In 1614, Sir Henry commissioned him to write a description of Jewish practices for King James I of England, which is quite unusual because obviously at the time there were no Jews yet in England, which meant that Modena had made quite an impression on him. And the resulting Historia de Riti Hebraici was the first description of Jewish customs and laws written by a Jew for a non-Jewish audience and was a major source of information for Christians about Judaism for generations. Even at the time of the French Revolution in 1789, Modena's Ritty was in demand. Henri Grégoire, a French Catholic revolutionary who advocated the emancipation of the Jews, mentions Modena by name several times. What was the point in printing Jewish practices for the, the general public? Point? Not necessarily. He was commissioned to do so, and he felt he could explain why Jews do what they do without it seeming hostile or unusual. He could put it over in a way that is sequential, and so he felt it was lotelesi. There was a, a purpose behind it. The problem is that printing Judaism for general consumption is dangerous. As Modena himself wrote, when I wrote it, I wasn't careful not to write things contrary to the Catholic Inquisition, because it was meant for people who were not of the Pope's sect. 
the English. But 20 years later, Jacques Gaffarel, a French Catholic mystic, printed the manuscript in a Catholic country. And in April 1637, Modena gets a letter about this, and he is terrified about what the authorities would do to him, because converting non-Jews in many European countries at the time was punishable by death, and this would initiate more unwanted drama into his life. What made things far worse was an event that had just taken place in the Venice ghetto itself. Just before Purim, two Jews were receivers of money, clothing and gold worth 70,000 ducats, which had been stolen by some Christians, and the Jews stored these stolen items in the ghetto. They were arrested. And then the secular courts learned from a Jewish informer the location of the loot. Purim Day, Friday, March 21st, 1636, which is usually a day of great festivity, became a day of great distress when the authorities closed off and searched the ghetto and the hiding places were uncovered. In fact, in his description of the events, Modena was particularly harsh on Isaac ben Jacob, who was the informant. The Jews are now accused as a whole of being a band of thieves. And um, to save themselves from the death penalty, those individuals who had been implicated now also became informants, and they report to the secular authorities on any activities and events which had happened in the ghetto, potentially a while back, anything to take the heat off them. And therefore there are investigations, cross-examinations and continuous arrests for an entire year. And what the Jewish community feared most was the very realistic possibility of a community-wide expulsion from Venice. In fact, in May 1637, the Council of Ten prohibited any Jew from going to the palazzo where the civil courts met to uh, agitate on behalf of any of the accused. And the penalty for violating this would be 10 years in a galley ship. And if the person was unable to do this, they would be hanged by the throat until dead. And the reason they made this decree was as a result of the bribes being given by Jews to the uh, judges because the Jews were very concerned about the outcome of this investigation. And in fact, whole families, sons, brothers were banished from the Republic, many of whom were entirely innocent. And then, and then Modena himself is also implicated when Isaac of Rovigo was arrested and he claimed that Modena knew about Jews who had bribed Venetian officials in the past, and he hadn't done his civic duty and reported them. So while this is happening in Venice, he gets the news that his book has been published in France, and Modena goes into what he describes as the greatest level of distress that he had ever experienced. He was a very intelligent man. Why had he not been more cautious when he wrote the book in the first place? Surely he must have known where it would end up. It was written for English Protestants and also published in the Venetian Republic, which was hostile to Rome at the time. Times change. So now Modena felt that he and his family were in danger and he goes into hiding. 
He fled to Padua. In fact, he left a gold tray in the custody of the Spanish ambassador. He even considered fleeing to Ferrara, a city outside of the Venetian Republic and now under papal control, which would help his issues of sort of alleged participation in the conspiracies of the Venice ghetto. But as far as his published book was concerned, if he was discovered as the author in papal lands, it would be much worse. And, you know, Modena was a publisher. He was a proofreader. So he knew that some of the features of the Ritti were on the index of forbidden Hebrew writings of, of the Catholic censors, particularly the, the 13 Articles of Faith, and, you know, mentioning that the Messiah hadn't come yet, that God was one and indivisible, not cool. And especially Italy as a country where they burned the Talmud. Yes, not that long previous, in 1553 in Rome, in Venice, and no printing of the Talmud would happen in Italy for 300 years. So he needs to clear his name or risk imprisonment, exile, possibly even worse. What can he do? So he decides to place his fate in the hands of the Inquisitor of Venice, who had treated him cordially in the past. In other words, he had a connection with him because of the printing that he had done. And Modena submitted a copy of the manuscript, and possibly, probably some money, and a, a begging letter. And basically, more or less, he starts praying. And the Dominican friar, Marco Ferro, ruled that the Ritti had to be burnt. The objectionable parts were the Rumbum's 13 Articles of Faith and, ironically, the description of the belief in Gilgulim, which we spoke about last week. So things are in a difficult place. And then, almost out of nowhere, the French ambassador gets a copy of this book and sent Modena a letter in his own hand, praising him for the book and conveying the king's regards. So now the church censor agrees to him reprinting it with certain pieces deleted. And the Ritti of 1638 was printed with a dedication to the French ambassador, who even gave Modena money to publish it. Interestingly, the title page includes a small picture of Modena, which is the only one we have today. It shows an old man with high cheekbones and a full beard. Do we have this image? We do. Here it is. For those watching in black and white, the green ball is next to the red. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist that so soon after the snooker final. Actually, You're a fan, obviously. I am indeed, yeah. yes. Actually, there were three images of him, but only this one remains, and it's obtainable on the internet, in fact. What about his other troubles? So the community as a whole pulled out all the stops, and they managed to get the intended expulsion cancelled, but the main instigators suffered. So Scaramella and Jacob Zorzetti were sent as slaves on a galley ship. Catalano became impoverished and Mordechai Zorzetti died after converting to Christianity, still in jail. So let's move from there because I just want to complete his biography, his life timeline, so to speak, to the last few years of his life. We mentioned that he stopped gambling in April 1633 and would stop for the next 14 years. And life is good for Modena, he wrote in his autobiography, that he would have been very satisfied had he not realised that old age had overcome both him and his wife. 
and he now instructs that when he dies, they shouldn't eulogize him excessively. In fact, there should only be one Hesper. The praises should not be excessive, just to say that his beliefs were consistent with his actions and that he turned from evil, which is a play on the title of his Sefer on Gambling, which was called Sur Mira. Of course, nothing was ever that smooth in his life. Modena had to endure the arrest and imprisonment of his 14-year-old grandson, who tried, contrary to the law, to print Beis Yehuda, which was Modena's Midrashic commentary. And the latest addition to his biography was written on February the 24th, 1648. Two weeks later, his wife died. The official record has a brief entry. Rachel, wife of Rabbi Leon da Modena, died at the age of 78, ghetto nuovo. Two weeks later, Modena himself passed away at the age of 77, and his entry is three lines later in the record, and his caver is still around on the island of the Lido. I can't remember if I asked this last week or the week before, but do people go to his caver? Because I'd never heard of him, so I guess he isn't one of the popular right. spots yes. of Venice. Yeah, but I guess those people who know of him, which hopefully post this podcast will include a few thousand more people than was the case prior. Well, okay, so what happens next after he dies? What's the aftermath? So there are more twists and turns, would you believe? As his unpublished manuscripts, including his autobiography, were rediscovered during the 19th century, Jewish writers who were unaware of his positive achievements during his lifetime and who had little information about the complexities of Jewish life in Venice were unable to place his writings in any proper perspective and come to a sort of complete assessment of the individual. And this was complicated by the existence of another book, Kol Sachal. This is a story in its own right. In May 1622, Modena tells us that when he was walking in Venice and crying over his bad fortune, it was just after the murder of his son, he met an acquaintance who travelled abroad regularly and had just returned from the West. This acquaintance showed him a small book which was very hostile to the rabbis and to the oral law, which he claimed had been written at least 120 years earlier by a Jew called Amitai Bar Yudaya from the Spanish city of Alcala near Madrid. This individual, who praised Modena's experience in matters of disputation with Christians, felt that Modena would be the best qualified person to respond So Modena takes the book, he looks it over, and he eventually responds, which took 18 months, or he did it over an 18-month period anyway. The book against the oral law was called Kol Sachal, The Voice of a Fool, which is possibly a title that Modena himself gave to it. And Modena called his response Shagas Aryeh, The Roar of the Lion, and he brought both to print. Although, and this is important, we only have parts of Modena's response, whereas we have the full Kol Sachal. 
Now, Kol Sachel is made up of sections. The first section is a rational proof for the existence of God based on the sort of, you know, orderly functioning of the universe and that the creation of the world was ex nihilo, from nothing. God wasn't part of this world. The world emanated from him, so anti-Spinoza. Moses had received the Torah from God. The soul was immortal and real reward would come in the next world. So far, so good. No? Indeed, yes. It's the second section where we find the author's objections to rabbinic Judaism, even uh -huh. though, yes, even though he rejected the Karaites and the Tzedekim as fools who took the Torah too literally, and the Christians who were of the opposite persuasion, he still writes that many rabbinic laws were inventions. The oral law was simply a device for ensuring the power of the rabbis, and it's an assault on rabbinic Judaism, which is raised by Jews who had converted in Spain to Christianity. And he speaks at length, it should be made easier for people to convert to Judaism. Converts shouldn't have to be circumcised. Do you think this reflects on him possibly being a former Murano? Very possibly, yes. And, you know, it says that the rules against eating cooked food and wine of non-Jews should be ended, make life easier for the Jews, eliminate some of the hostility which these rules created. And then Kol Sachal contains a tefillah, a prayer, the first half of which was almost identical to a prayer which later appeared only in 1642. Who wrote this Kol Sachal? Okay. Much ink has been spilt figuring out who the author was, and it's really controversial. There are four possibilities. Possibility number one, that the facts are as Modena stated. He got this book written by a Spanish ex-Jew about around the time of the expulsion from Spain. And in 1622, Modena wrote a response to it, and either the response was never copied entirely or never completed, and therefore there are only two chapters of it. Possibility two, he, Modena, received a manuscript which was really written by a contemporary 17th century Jewish opponent of rabbinic Judaism, you know, maybe in Amsterdam, in Hamburg or Venice, possibly someone like Uriel de Costa or one of the others who were excommunicated between 1615 and 1622. And once again, Modena wrote a response. Possibility three. Modena wrote Kol Sachal himself in order to have grounds to write a comprehensive refutation, to have source material to pick apart. And possibility four. Modena wrote Kol Sachal to spread his own very heretical views, which he had in secret, and therefore he couldn't do it under his own name, so he invented this whole story in order to get Kol Sachal out there into the public, which he felt was important. But what about the uh, rebuttal, which he obviously wrote? So the rebuttal is seen as, since we only have two chapters, that's all he wrote, and it's very half-hearted, oh. right? And would you believe that most academics assume point four? In other words, Modena wrote Kol Sachal and was a closet heretic and Apicarus. Wow. But how would that fit in with everything else going on in his life? I mean, he was clearly exactly. a respected okay. rabbinic figure. So, so let's go through the four. The first two possibilities that it was written by somebody who was, you know, heretically minded and Modena wanted to refute it, fit in best with his activities. He was a strong fighter in defense of Judaism. He had access to many manuscripts. Um, he could have easily gotten hold of this one and decided to write an answer. And from what is known about the life and writings 
of people like Alfonso de Zamora and Paul Nunez Coronel in the early 1500s, both raised as Jews and converted at the time of the expulsion or shortly afterwards, they both produced works against Judaism. And one of them shows many similarities to Kol Sachal. It's a conversion letter which Zamora wrote in 1526 in both Hebrew and Latin to the Jews of Rome including proofs for the divinity of Yeshu from the Bible and from the Zohar, and there are chapters devoted to arguments against the Talmud and Kabbalah. So, you know, those two make sense. The third possibility that he wrote Kol Sachal in order to refute it is unlikely. Why create such a work when there's so many of them around already? And it's also very dangerous. He wouldn't take the risk. Uh, in well, case there'd if be nobody, more... if there's no author there, then it could have been written by anybody. You mean the handwriting? Still, the arguments possibly. are very convincing, potentially. Uh, yes. Okay. The final possibility that Modena wrote Kol Sachal to express his real feelings about rabbinic Judaism is really, you know, it's based on the, I guess, sceptical view that people are capable of anything, and that given Modena's life's of ups and downs, who knows what he really believed? But in life of his repeated defence of rabbinic law, as opposed to defense of Kabbalah, this view is ridiculous, although it's widely accepted. But was this written in 15th century Spanish style or 17th Italian century style? I mean, I'm guessing there's a difference. There is Country, very much a time. difference. However, it actually seems to come down more on the Italian style. But even if it's possible to prove that it's Modena's word choice, that doesn't mean that he was the author because he copied and probably translated it. It wasn't written in Italian and he produced it in Italian. So, you know, he must have had a hand in its production. In fact, there's, there's a Jew called Isaac Reggio in the 1800s who offered a number of these types of proofs from Kol Sachal that it had to have been written by an Italian Jew. The use of the term chazan, which is common in Italy, not in Spain. The spelling of words like italiano and tugar for the word Turk. But firstly, Reggio had an agenda and he actually fabricated some of his proofs. And secondly, the linguistic similarities between modern and Kolsachal is unsurprising, given his editorial role in it. What about the prayers only printed in 16, I think it's 42, you said? Yeah, so that's more of a question. The appearance of a similar prayer in Kolsachal and in a book of Tefillah editions, which is edited by Modena, is not straightforward. But it isn't necessarily a major issue because the 1642 edition is a revised version of a book of Tfilis which was originally uh, produced by Modena between 1623 and 1624, which we no longer have. So we don't know what Modena included. And the 1642 one he didn't put out. But admittedly, it makes things a little shakier. However, the accepted view in history of Modena was very negative generally. You have Shadal, Shmuel David Luzzato, who defames him. In 1846, or by then, Luzzato developed the view of Modena as a lazy, gambling, hypocritical heretic. And when you place all of the episodes of gambling together, and therefore out of context, as if there was no break of the years between them, you give the impression that gambling had been a perpetual occupation for Modena, and one at which he always lost. You painted him as being quite a, a good Jew, mm -hmm. albeit with some flaws. Why was he attacked so harshly? 
So in Shadal's particular case, the reasons are a little too lengthy to go into, but they are personal, uh, personal to various adverse events in Letato's life at the time and to a long-standing and damaging fight that he was in with Shlomo Yehuda Rappaport, the rabbi of Prague. But this assessment of Modena became pretty standard. Yes, it's true. Modena's personality has contradictions. He wrote against amulets, but sold them. He quoted the Zayar and challenged it. Um, but if there were a rabbi wrecked by contradictions, it wasn't Modena as much as his attackers in many ways. And then comes the, the sort of the final nail in the coffin for him. His fate is handed over to the quote-unquote historian Abraham Geiger, who was by then the leading reform rabbi in the world, basically. And Modena, or the history of Modena, was a godsend for him. It was gold dust, because it shows that orthodox rabbis harboured secret opinions, negative opinions about Judaism. You know, so like, finally, we can prove that reform didn't start with Mendelssohn's pupils. Plenty of rabbis in the olden days were, you know, secret lemonade drinkers. <laughs> but the position of reform was problematic because in order to make Modena suitable for their liberal purposes, they had to portray him as a hypocrite who wrote very convincingly in public to defend Judaism and then secretly against rabbinic Judaism because he was too much of a coward. Now, obviously, Geiger, his chief contribution to the distortion of Modena's views was that he equated Modena's attack on Kabbalah with an attack against all of the oral law, because Geiger was trying to undermine the credibility of all rabbinic teaching. And he wanted to show that Modena was typical of rabbis. They keep their positions for the sake of power and prestige and income, uh, but they don't believe. But you can't undo 70 years of Modena's writing and speaking with one alleged book. The sad truth is, though, that to this day, there's hardly a work dealing with the period that does not include mention of Modena as a gambler, as a free thinker, uh, wrecked by contradictions. He was anti-Kabbalah, and the Ramchal was very upset about that. But that isn't the same as anti-oral law by any stretch of the imagination. Seems almost like an agenda. So what happens is that it gets perpetuated. It is put across so authoritatively by various people that it is now accepted law, as in L-O-R-E. You know, some recent historians have sought to find in Modena the idea of the Renaissance Jew, the first modern rabbi. But it misses the point. He spent much of his adult life defending traditional medieval rabbinic authority. In fact, it's probably more apt to view him as one of the last medieval rabbis. And his most significant products in literary terms are his strong writings against Christianity and against people who wrote heretical views about Judaism and against Jewish mysticism. But in all three, the point was to defend halachic and normative rabbinic Judaism. How about today and most specifically in the religious world how is he viewed even there this negative view exists in the works of even halachic authorities such as the tzitz eliezer rabbi eliezer yehuda waldenberg who died in 2006 he was a poisek in yushalayim he writes dealing with the question that he'd been asked about having uh, musical instruments and particularly an organ in shul he says at the end of his responsum that somebody showed him responsa of the Italian Chacham, Rabbi Yehuda Arya Mimodina, 
who is in favour of singing and choral shul services and repeating words in davening. So the Titeliezer says, but these responses have nothing to do with musical instruments. And anyway, Modena was a person whose views were all over the place, and he fought battles against the rabbis of his town as if he was a muskil, and he walked around bareheaded, and he made fun of those who forbade playing with a ball, football, in other words, on Shabbos. And most of this is simply an unfair assessment of him, or untrue, as we mentioned last week, except for being bareheaded in public. And then the Tzitzeliezer writes, V'chol yomov ad um, zikna v'seva hoyomasachek b'kuvya. And all his life, until his very old age, he, camp- he gambled. He couldn't give it up, even when he was losing large amounts, which we've so shown is also untrue. And basically, the Tzitzeliezer hasn't read all of the history about Modena. He's basing himself on people like Shadal, who's enough in the religious camp, he's a religious rabbi, that he would have relied on it for his history. And uh, Shadal put all of his gambling episodes into one paragraph. And then the Tzitzeliezer ends, so why should we take his, his views of halacha into account? And even the rabbis of his town were against him. So it might be beyond the scope of this podcast, but is there a certain sin that would write off a rabbi? I mean, he's saying he's gambling, so how can we take his views into account? Maybe there's some legitimacy to that. So what he's saying is that his views are either so contradictory from one day to the next or from one place to another. Unstable. Right. In which case you can't rely for psuck on what he has written. Or it's much worse than that. He's actually borderline heretic. And then definitely that would rule a person out of the running in being able to decide Jewish law. Now, the idea that the rabbis of his town were against him, we mentioned earlier that he had asked for there to be only one Hesped when he died. In fact, they carried out eulogies for two weeks, which gives an idea of, you know, the esteem in which he was held. And also to mention, in 1618, Uriel da Costa was excommunicated by the rabbis in Venice, as we mentioned last month, and I deliberately didn't say who had done the excommunicating, but it was Modena, in order to defend Judaism. And he wrote a letter to the lay leaders in Hamburg about a certain man in their midst who opposed the oral law of the rabbis, and Modena calls him a min, an apicurus, a heretic, and he attacks all of his ideas. And in an Italian manuscript in 1627, Modena defends rabbinic Judaism and the Talmud from the book uh, Bibliotheca Sancta by Sixtus of Siena, which had been published in Venice, and he exposes it as lies and writes a refutation. And perhaps finally, we find that one of Modena's functions as a rabbi in Venice was to regulate the printing of Svarim generally. In 1618, the collected responses of the Maharam of Lublin were published in Venice. And one of those responses dealt with a case which involved the rabbi in Mantua against the bankers and the Jewish community of that city in 1599. And the Maharam wrote a truva which threatened the rabbi with excommunication. Now that everybody had passed away, the rabbi's family felt that he looked foolish in this responsum of the Maram of Lublin. They didn't want a permanent record of his name being altered by the Maram. 
And Modena ruled that the page in question needs to be reprinted without any negative words about the rabbi and that anybody who owned the uncensored page has to remove it and exchange it for a new one. And any book subsequently discovered with the original unedited page would be burnt. And in his tshuva, Modena was emphatic that the reputation of a rabbi must be defended. So, yes, he was inconsistent and he was impatient, but he was a diverse character. He lists 26 occupations in his autobiography. You know, he dabbled in alchemy and amulets and fortune telling and bibliomancy and dream divination, even though he was opposed to Kabbalah. Forgive my ignorance. Bibliomancy? Yes, it's something you're aware of. You're just not aware of the English word. When you ask a child what posuk they had learnt that day in school in order to know what to do. It's a, a favoured device when trouble looms. You find it in the Gomorrah, you find it in various places. And Modena was really into Camus. During the plague of 1630 and 31, he sold amulets that contained a prayer based on a name of God, which he said he had learned in a dream. And according to Modena's grandson, Every house to which this amulet was affixed remained untouched by the plague. Every apartment, I guess, is more accurate. And Modena left his grandson a collection of 13 books on the topic. All but two were in Hebrew. And also, as we mentioned last week, gambling never impeded his ability to carry out the functions of a rabbi. But you only understand this when you see the full picture. If you read selectively, if you read his autobiography, it's a partial story. It's a private family chronicle, and it concentrates on the author's relatives and only selectively on his own life and writings. It wasn't written for publishing? Yes, possibly, but possibly only for the family. But even if it was, but he doesn't relate in full his professional accomplishments, his role, even in communal controversies, his relations with important people. He was more concerned with documenting his intimate personal reactions to events, those that had an impact on him, especially when the result was, you know, unpleasant or negative. More like a diary. Yes. Yeah, very much so. And his grandson writes that Modena had given sermons to thousands of people and hundreds had to be turned away. But Modena never mentions any nobility who attended his sermons. However much, you know, his prestige rose, that wasn't the purpose. There was no ego there. And important achievements in his life, you have to read through all his letters and responsa and polemics. So academics are overemphasizing certain elements. And in fact, the front page of his biography also gets back to the point you just raised. He writes that the biography was written in Hebrew and he titles it almost Ma'at Varoim Hoyu Yumei Shnei Chayai Ba'ilam Hazer. Few and difficult have been my years in this world, which is so true about him. And that, yes, that affected him as well. But there's some accusations, even in religious circles, which are insane. You may be aware that anyone who recites the Yom Kippur Cotton prayers says a tefillah that he authored, that uh, Rabbi Yehuda Arimi Modena authored. It's the one just before Ashrei, Yom Ze Yehi. And there were those who accused Modena of having made clear Sabbatean references in 
this Yemzer, and who wanted to remove it from the Siddur, or at least change the words Nezer Reishenu to Ateres Reishenu, both of which mean the crown of the head, because the numerical value of Nezer Reshenu is the same as the name Shabtai Tzvi. <laughs> Did he not die before Shabtai Tzvi was even born? He didn't die before he was born, but he died almost 20 years before 1665 when the whole movement came to a head, which is therefore insane, right? Wow. All right. That was fantastic. Very, very fascinating glimpse. Any wrap up? Well, let's finish on the lighter note. Modena also wrote a book of Jewish riddles, and I will share a few. <laughs> First one. Your father is my father. Your grandfather is my husband. I am your sister, and you are my son. And the answer to that is the daughters of Light speaking to their children. <laughs> right? Two more yeah. riddles. I'm going to give you the question without the answers. First is, and it's a difficult one, I saw the dead live in the living grave. The grave turned and the dead prayed. The last word is an important one to understand who we are talking about. And the last one is subtract 30 shloshim, from 30 and you have 60 left. You can't Google the answers, obviously. Maybe, I don't know. Modena also showed that numerical equivalent, the gematria of Yeshu HaNitzri is the number for the Antichrist 666. <laughs> yeah. And in March, I took a group to Italy. And when we were in the ghetto in Venice, I said to them, we are standing in front of Ribihuda Ariemi Modena's Besa Medrash. And they all said, who? And I told them they needed to be patient for a month. That's what inspired the series. <laughs> People's so ignorance. Despite three podcasts, this isn't exhaustive, and he has other writings which I haven't mentioned, but I think we have at least made it more of a level playing field to explore who he actually was, which I can't give a definitive answer to, and perhaps good for us to know that we don't know everything. I think it's pretty clear on your views on him. You're uh, slightly more... To, to... Definitely to more towards the positive than the negative. Yeah. There's no question. His anti-Kabbalah stuff is, So it's you know, a somewhat controversial episode, Rabbi Hirsch. <laughs> Perhaps. Maybe I'll brace ourselves for the feedback. Thank you very much for that. That's fascinating. Do we have a hint on the next series? I would like to do a three-part series on the history of Budapest, but stopping before any of the period of time that people are familiar with, so going all the way back to the times of the Middle Ages, the Roshanim, and then the Ottoman period, and then the Habsburg period. Well, that's the plan. We'll see how it develops. Brilliant. Looking forward. Thank you again. And as usual, please send any questions, any feedback. Tell us what you thought of the Modernist series. Send that all to podcasts at jle.org.uk. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch, and good night. Mm -hmm.